Um, so my name is uh, Jennifer McNett, and I teach at Wheaton College. Um, I'm Associate Professor of Theology and History of Christianity there. And I've been there 10 years now, which I can hardly believe. It's a real joy. Um, I am from California originally, so it's real fun to be back. And my mother-in-law worked at Pepperdine for 17 years. So it's really fun to walk around with my in-laws around campus because everybody knows them. So... Uh, Mom, would you give a shout out? <laughs> um, so my area of expertise is Reformation history of the church and theology from the Reformation through the Enlightenment. So I do a period that's considered the early modern period. It's a really exciting period because so much is changing. A lot of scholars think that the foundations of the modern world are happening really in this period, from the 16th century to the 18th century. And in the 16th century, you know, something called the Reformation happened. Yeah, you probably heard of it. And this last year, 2017, marked the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. So I've been doing a lot of talking to lots of different types of audiences about the significance of that, which has been, been really wonderful um, and exciting. I also coordinate the MA programs at Wheaton in Theology and History of Christianity. So if you know somebody who wants to do a master's degree, then you get them in touch with me and I'm happy to talk with them. So let's get to know each other a bit. So we're gonna be talking about Christianity and science and we only have one hour to do it, which is pretty laughable. Um, so how many of you here, just raise your hand, how many of you consider yourselves a, um, like maybe you have a degree in science or consider yourself more like a science person. Okay, good number. Okay, now how many of you, maybe you have a degree in the humanities, you consider yourself more of a humanities kind of person. So that, so it's a good, we've got everybody here. Good, that's good. We need everybody to have this conversation. Um, so I want to take a little different approach to this topic and I want to tell you some, some stories, lesser known, unknown stories that I've found in the archives or just doing my own research and teaching on how the church has engaged with science historically. And I think it's a really valuable and important conversation for today as we think about being Christians in the world today. How do we think about our relationship with science? How do we think, how do we engage with science um, as faithful thinking Christians? And, uh, and I want to do it in a way, so I want to bring in a way the past to the present for you, invite you to reflect on this important question. Um, so I actually, I went to Westmont College in Santa Barbara. I did my religious studies degree there, and then I went to seminary and did a Master of Divinity, and then I went and did a PhD in history in Scotland, which, which by the way, was not bad. <laughs> pretty great, pretty, uh, pretty wonderful thing. Um, but so I was very much in the humanities, very, very much. Um, not really considered myself a science person. And so the history of how the church, how church leaders, so whether you call them clergy or ministers or pastors or whatever word you use for the church leaders, um, that I found this topic, how they were engaging with science, is something that actually sort of found me as I was doing my own other research on the history of the church. It was just a topic that popped up in the stories of the archives. And I was in Geneva, Switzerland. I don't know how many of you have been to Geneva, Switzerland. And I was there in the state archives and I was reading the records of the clergy there. And I, I sort of came into my research with this one mindset. It was it's very much shaped by the idea that as science marched forward, the church retreated, right? as science began to take the place of sort of the voice of authority that the clergy were marginalized in their impact. And a lot of that is related to a theory called secularization theory. You might have heard of secularization before and wondered what that really is and, and what, how that relates to the historical accounts. And, um, and so it relates to secularization theory, this, this perspective that as modernity happens, as the modern age emerges, that religion declines, that Christianity declines, um, is the assumption. 
And so I thought, as I was engaging with it, I thought, or that there was a conflict even, that science and Christianity are in conflict. And so that was sort of, that was the perspective that I had when I entered into the historical records. Um, what, so let's, let's just share a little bit, whoever feels comfortable, but what do you hear? What do you hear in culture, in the news, when you watch a show, when you go to a movie about how science and Christianity either interact today or have interacted in the past? What are some of the, the things that you hear, even in passing? Yeah. In the past, the interaction was quite strong. Uh, Joseph Lister and there we have a number of people who, who were strong Christians as well as very renowned scientists. And, and it back quite a while. Today, it's a little bit of conflict. There's trying to be attention in trying that the uh, secular versus the... Uh, you have to be secularist in order to be a good scientist, supposedly. Yeah, but, okay. But, but there are prominent scientists today who are Christians. Don't get quite as much publicity. Good, yes, exactly. Don't get as much publicity. Thank you, yeah. Yes? Uh, I think today's um, perspective of the one element would be that science is fact and religion is faith, yeah. and the two shall never meet. That's right. Thank you. Yeah. I have to say that faith believers aren't logical. Mm. Yes, exactly. Thank you. Um, I've kind of heard that uh, a lot of like environmental scientists and stuff like that are new prophets. New prophets. Oh, interesting. Okay. Wow. Yeah, kind of taking over that role even. that That's fascinating. Yes? And to spin off of that, certainly as we know, there's this term evangelical atheists with the four horsemen of the apocalypse including yes. and his crew, which they're taking their message, you know, uh, aggressively to try and refute uh, uh, faith-based perspective. That's right. Good. I was going to mention them. I love it. Thank you. That moves us on nicely. I think two things that we have that are dominating today in, a, in our cultural outlook, these are two important terms to know. One is scientism. Some of you mentioned this, that assumes scientific knowledge is the only legitimate kind of knowledge. And then the second one is naturalism, that assumes that the supernatural involvement is not even plausible, that it's not even possible that there's a supernatural involvement. And that, it could be in two different things. That could be in a primary way, in a direct way, or it could be in a secondary way or an indirect way. So God at work through what's called secondary causes, okay? So um, using, for example, the laws of nature in order to make, to direct, uh, direct different events. Um, and yet because of Christianity's fundamental claim that the world was created, by God and for Orthodox Christians created out of nothing, ex nihilo is the phrase that we use to explain that. And we can set aside the question of how long that took, but just that he created out of nothing. And how Christianity and the church then navigated the rise of science in the past, I think has a bearing for us today. What was, is, and should be the relationship between Christianity and science? There's a a wonderful man, wonderful scholar that would be good for you to know by the name of Ian Barber. If you're interested in this topic, his books are good to read. He's really considered the father of the field of religion and science, of this topic of, of Christianity and science. And he says it best, I think. He says, when science meets religion, are they enemies, strangers, or partners? Enemies, strangers, or partners? What is that dynamic and what should that dynamic be? Um, for some prominent voices in our culture, the story of Christianity and science has, has always been a story of enemies, always been a story of enemies that you'll hear, for example, in the 16th century, it wasn't just the Reformation that happened to the church, but also the scientific revolution that happened when Copernicus published his On the Revolutions of the Heavenly Spheres in the mid-16th century, that that really began a process of, of um, dethroning Aristotle and his perspective of how the world was situated. And you know, it's really not just how the planets are ordered, but it was actually how society was ordered. There were lots of implications for changing the Aristotelian perspective. And, um, and so the story of enemies is that from that moment the, that they emerged and there was this inherent conflict 
from the 16th century all the way through. And that the, the evolution, for example, in the Darwinian era in the 19th century, that that just is another, another facet of that conflict that had been there since the 16th century. That the fight is one where the church is seeking to, to be able to define reality for the world. That this is this fight that they're having with, with science. Um, and this antagonistic or conflict model is frequently reflected in the popular modern mentality. So I want to illustrate that for you with a joke. Okay. God is sitting in heaven one day when a scientist says to him, Lord, we don't need you anymore. Science has finally figured out a way to create life out of nothing. In other words, we can now do what you did in the beginning. Oh, is that so? Replies God, very evenly. <laughs> well, says the scientist, we can take dirt and form it and into your likeness and breathe life into it and create humanity. And so God responds in a measured way. Well, that's, that's interesting. Show me. So the scientist bends down to the earth and starts to mold the soil. And God interrupts. Oh, no, no, no. Get your own dirt. <laughs> it's, such a, it's such an interesting joke, isn't it? Because it reflects the modern perspective that what science is trying to do is actually take the place of God. Right? So you can also study the joke itself as a reflection <coughs> into the culture. Um, so there's this territorial tension at work, and it, it, it has become popularized. One of the ways is through the Four Horsemen of Atheism. So you already heard him mention Richard Dawkins. Um, so I was living in Cambridge when this book came out, and I will tell you, it was in every single storefront, on every single street, it felt like this red book that was just everywhere. In fact, it was so, so popular that the BBC had a live, or it might have been tapes, but anyway, um, had a, an apologetics debate between Dawkins and Alistair McGrath on the BBC. And of course, the whole country watched it because they have four channels, and there's not that much to watch otherwise. So, <laughs> and, you know, um, and so he publishes this book. By 2007, it had sold over 1.5 million copies and been translated into 31 languages. Um, the intention of the book is to convert people to atheism. And what it does is it uses the history of Christianity as a way, as a foundation for, look, this is the pattern of how the church has treated science. It is constrained, it has attacked, it has oppressed, it has dominated science from the beginning, and so we need to reject Christianity. I mean, that's really the, the reasoning of the book. Um, and so, you know, he, he calls God lots of terrible things. Um, and even calls for us to raise our children to believe in God as a form of child abuse. Alistair McGrath, the famous apologist at Wycliffe Hall, he responded with the Dawkins delusion instead of the God delusion, a nice little play on the title. And he said the following, one of the most melancholy aspects of the God delusion is how its author appears to have made the transition from a scientist with a passionate concern for truth to a crude anti-religious propagandist who shows a disregard for evidence. McGrath argues that Dawkins' work perpetuates this oversimplified perception that science is good, religion is bad, science is right, religion is wrong, Christianity. According to his historical rendition of the story, scientific advancement is not only independent of Christian origins, but it thrived despite Christianity's age-long antagonism. So this is, is significant. I think the example is important because it shows how we tell the historical story has an impact on how we think about the relationship today. Um, so what was what was that story? What was that historical dynamic? How has Christianity interacted with science? The question is actually not easy to answer, okay, first of all. And the reason is because the story of Christianity at war with science, or what's called the conflict model, actually emerged in the end of the 19th century. 
It was before the mid-19th century to late 19th century, the story was not of war and conflict, and I mean how people told the story, okay? So, but from the mid-19th century later, they began to tell the story in a different kind of way. So there was a famous book that was published called A History of the Warfare of Science with Theology in Christendom. Um, oh, sorry, before that. John William Draper wrote, so here in their bestselling, A History of the Conflict Between Religion and Science. That was 1874. And then we had in 1896, Andrew Dixon White writes A History of the Warfare Feast of warfare between science and theology and Christendom. This book came to define the, relation, the historical relationship between Christianity and science for the 20th century. So we entered into the 20th century with this narrative in our brains, uh, with this mentality about how the church has related to science. Um, and so here's some historians of science who have a wonderful quote, no work, not even John William Draper's best-selling book, has done more than whites to instill in the public mind a sense of the adversarial relationship between science and religion. So that means that this, this narrative uh, comes into our world, into our mentality in the late 19th century. Both authors characterize the two fields, though, as historically in battle with each other from the scientific revolution on. And in White's chapter, he, he entitles it, The Victory of Science Over Religion. He describes it as emancipation from terror and fanaticism. So this is the perspective of, um, now, of course, you can understand these figures in their own time and place. Andrew Dixon White was the founder of Cornell University, and he's sort of struggling in his own kinds of ways with some of the ways he sees the church as having a stranglehold on the university for, for right or wrong. Um, and so he's speaking out of that context, but it has a huge impact. It really colors the story, which is, which is significant. Um, so White singles out a number of pastors. He singles out John Wesley. Do you guys know John Wesley, founder of Methodism? Yes. He singles out Increase Mather. I don't know if you've heard of him. He was a Puritan. I'm going to talk a little bit about him. And he says that from the first to last, a long line of eminent divines, Anglican Calvinistic strove to resist new thought. Um, so this, this also reflects some of the other writings of the time, um, the crisis of the age, a lot about how enlightenment, the enlightenment era happens and the church is like, ah, and doesn't know what to do, you know, and it's just very simple is, is a takeaway. It's very simple and it's a, it's a lot more complicated than that as it is with anything. So, I, so take all of that with you, and, but what happened then when the clergy actually met science? So I walk into the Genevan archives, I'm bringing all of this with me, and I begin to read these stories. And I'm like, but didn't they say that there were riots when they tried to introduce the new calendar? So the Julian calendar they had for centuries and they tried to introduce the new calendar. Didn't people riot about that because they didn't want science to define time? No. They didn't. <laughs> right? Didn't didn't they get upset when elect uh, when uh, electricity conductors, the rods were put in cities, didn't people riot over that? No, they didn't. All of these stories, right, that we've been told, that we've been, been hearing, that are not fair representations of the historical record. And so, um, so the, the records didn't match the narrative. And so, um, what, what I began to see, and again, there's complexity here, but the stories I want to highlight for you are stories of how clergy actually promoted scientific advancement. And one of the ways that they did it was they interpreted what was happening for their congregants. One of the ways that they did that was to say, these are the latest discoveries because, of course, they are the most educated people at this time, you know, in these, in these periods. They're the most educated people often in their communities. And so they're reading a lot. They're intellectuals. They're engaged with lots of new knowledge. And then they're taking that, they're writing their sermons, and they're communicating it to congregants. And they're saying, this is how we should think about this theologically. This is how we should think about this biblically. And I think, so I guess the takeaway, before I tell you the stories, is the takeaway is this is what we should be doing in our churches today. 
this, we should be engaging with science, with scientific development, thinking about it biblically, thinking about it theologically, and having this conversation instead of isolating ourselves. So that's, that's your takeaway, but I'm going to keep going. <laughs> what I discovered led me to my first published academic article on the calendar, calendar reform. Um, I ended up co-teaching a class with Dr. Robert Bishop, a physics professor at Wheaton, and then I wrote an article for Christianity Day that came out in December for their science essay contest. And I won first place, so that was pretty good. <laughs> so I'm really excited to share some of those stories with you. And I think just revealing a, a different story than what we expect. And sometimes history, doing good history, is taking the stories that we don't get to hear and sharing them at a time when we need to hear them when we need to hear these other parts of the story. Um, so let's begin with the Puritans, because the Puritans, surely, if anybody was opposed to science, it was the Puritans, right? I mean, based upon what we think about the Puritans. How would you describe a Puritan? Just some words that come to mind as you think this is a Puritan. Pure? Pure? Oh, well, that's a nice one. <laughs> Good. <laughs> Sorry? Rebellious. Rebellious. Oh, good. You guys are good. You must know more about the Puritans than uh, my normal audiences. <laughs> Theocrat. Theocrat. Okay. Yes. Good. The Orthodox. The Orthodox. Okay. Any Hawthorne, Nathaniel Hawthorne people in here? Yeah. Cold, rigid, right? Sometimes purity can be seen, right, as there can be different connota connotations for that. Solemn, yes, no laughing. You know, Puritan studies is funny because they, the historians there, they write articles that are like titled Puritans like sex. <laughs> because you don't expect that from the Puritans. You know, you don't think like, you know, they love their husbands and they love their children and, you know, they had nice families and um, you don't expect those kinds of stories. But oftentimes they're seen as cold and rigid. And But in the 16th century, a Puritan was described as a hot Protestant, hot Protestant technically, because they are kind of like your Pentecostals of the 16th century. This relates really nicely with the theme of the, uh, with, with our theme this year about the Holy Spirit. They believed that a worship service needed to have room for the Holy Spirit to move. You couldn't have, they didn't want the prescribed prayers, the prescribed sermons, everything sort of rigid. They wanted to be able to be spontaneous, to be moved by the Spirit, to share in sort of, you know, enriching ways. And so, um, so they were called hot Protestants. That's where you get the rebellious, and that's where you get uh, that. So then let's move to America and talk about increased Mather. So Increase Mather here. Increase Mather, he was a contemporary of Isaac Newton. So I'm sure you've all heard of Isaac Newton. He was the sixth president of Harvard. He was a Puritan. He was linked to the Salem witch trials. So if you've ever heard his name, it's probably linked to the <coughs> Salem witch trials. Now his role was actually trying to keep what's called spectral evidence out of the courtroom. You know, the little girls, they saw things that were happening and they tried to keep that out of the courtroom. And so that was one of the ways he tried to do that, but he did not succeed. He helped found the Boston Philosophical Society and he advocated, this is why I want to highlight his story, pioneering preventative approaches to disease and along with his son, Cotton. In 1721, 60% of the Boston populace contracted smallpox. 60% of their population. And of course, smallpox is terrible, right? It's, you can go blind, you're disfigured, of course, you can die. Um, this is a real concern that they had at the time. The medical community was not in support of the smallpox inoculation method yet. There was lots of public debate going on. One scholar calls it the most heated newspaper debate in colonial America. So they're having these debates about how do we treat this, this illness. And uh, the increase published two pieces on the subject that year um, where he talked about how inoculation is a lawful practice that is blessed by God to save the lives of, of, of people. His son then, Cotton, wrote the first <coughs> pro-inoculation piece for the Boston Gazette and Increase and four other clergymen 
signed this, uh, this article in support. In fact, it was so controversial that someone tried to bomb his house, but the bomb didn't go off, so it was not successful. So they're really putting themselves out there, okay? They're putting themselves on the line, their lives on the line in order to, to advance this. And wh what I want you to understand is that they saw that as part of their pastoral duty. Like this is part of what they thought a pastor should do. This is how you care for congregants. This is how you care for society. So that's interesting to me that they have this perspective. Um, Many lives were saved, actually, um, in, in supporting this method. Of course, it got better and better over time. And what's interesting, too, is that Cotton Mather then increases son went on to, be, to gain acclaim for his observations in botany. He was elected to the, as a fellow of the Royal Society of London um, for his work. He wrote a book called The Christian Philosopher, a collection of the best discoveries in nature with religious improvements. <laughs> um, he, it's, a, it's a funny book to read. He's very like excited about the function of, of nature and its uses and beauties. And he has this whole thing about wheat. He just goes off, oh, the glory of God through the wheat, the way that the wheat works, you know. Um, but he sees the beauty in how the wheat adapts to different climates. Um, so he's one Puritan. Let's move on to Jonathan Edwards. Uh, what do you know Jonathan Edwards for? In your high school textbook, there's usually one thing that's said. Sinner, I mean, everybody's whispering. Sinners in the hands of an angry God, right? That sermon, that famous sermon that he preached, yeah? usually just focuses on the first part of the sermon, but not really on the second part, right? He's building up to the redemption that we have through Christ, total reliance on him. Uh, but usually, but he begins, and he has this really powerful image of a cauldron. And what's dangling over the cauldron? A spider. He has a spider. And we're supposed to identify with the spider. We're like a spider dangling over this bubbling hot cauldron. And who will save us from this, this pot and um, from this demise? Um, so what's funny is, of course, you know, I don't like spiders. So to me, that's like really rude, you know, to like <laughs> compare, compare us with the spider. He's thinking of original sin, of course, and he's thinking of those, those things which are nicely theologically sound. But still, uh, I don't want to be identified with the spider. But as it turns out, you know, Jonathan Edwards had high respect and love for arachnids. Um, this, is, this is a drawing that he did. Can you see the spider? there and he liked to trace how the web worked and how they would fling out into the um, into the ocean and just all the different ways that they would work and so Jonathan Edwards talked about it in this way he says of all the insects no one is more wonderful than the spider especially with respect to their sagacity and admirable way of working wow so that's how he thought about spiders he did um, in his personal notebooks he was a learned man. He was engaging with Newton. He was writing about Newton's theories on rainbows and on motion. And he was engaging with these things. He was a thoughtful clergyman who was interested in these aspects of life. In fact, the famous historian George Marsden, well, if you're going to read a biography of Edwards, George Marsden's biography is the one to read. And he writes the following. He says, New England clergy, being the best educated persons in their communities, were often the chief interpreters of the new science. The interpreters. I think that's the part that I want to focus on, is that conversation, that interpretation. The next group you won't know. Uh, you know John Calvin, I'm sure. But you won't know these other names, because they're lesser-known clergy that come out of the city of Geneva. And this is where my archival research comes from. Um, the Genevan clergy would preach, and I was doing a study on their, their preaching and their sermons, and I began to realize that they were using scientific concepts, scientific examples as illustrations for their exegetical interpretations, as, as illustrations for the way that they understood what the Bible was saying and what um, in theology. And so, for example, the first one, Pastor Pierre Mouchon, I want to highlight for you. He was talk, He was preaching one day on 
the inability of humanity to escape sin. And how do you communicate that to someone? How do you say that sin is a part of who you are and you can't get away from it? The way that he did it was he talked about sin as corrupted blood that circulates through the physical body. Sin is corrupted blood that circulates through the physical body. Now, his perspective, when he says that, fits with how they understood diseases to work at the time in the 18th century. That um, diseases were the result of fluids like blood. So that's why they had the practice of bloodletting, where they would try to get the blood out of their body because they thought that the, the disease was in the blood. And rather than understanding it as a virus, as we would understand today. And so what he's doing then is he's taking a orthodox theological understanding of what we would call hereditary sin or original sin. He's taking that and he's communicating it to them in a way that they can understand, in the way that congregants can understand. He's grounding it in a physiological explanation. Pastor Ezekiel Gallatin is another interesting example. He, uh, his sermons, he's talking about telescopes, microscopes, gravity, all these different things to illustrate the meaning behind 1 Corinthians 13, 9. <laughs> okay? And which is, I know you all know it just off the top of your head, but it's, you know, we see through a glass dimly. Oh, how perfect is that when you're talking about a telescope? Now, he doesn't do it in a disparaging way of science. Not at all disparaging. He says, what wonders the telescope has revealed to us. We had no idea how expansive the universe was. What wonders the microscope has revealed to us. We had no idea that there were creatures that were this tiny that we could not see with our naked eye. And yet, we see through a glass dimly, right? It's that there's so much more that we do not understand that we cannot grasp. And so um, we, we, we grasp only a small part. For him, I love it. It's not an opportunity to wallow, but to revel in God's revelation. And he uses that then to talk about Jesus, to talk about the promises that our human curiosity and knowledge will be fully satisfied at the end of the age. So there's a hopefulness and eschatology that is tied to it. We keep looking and we keep searching and God reveals things to us through the technology of the age. And yet there's still so much more that will be revealed, that can be revealed to us. Geneva was a funny place um, in that, well, it was very, very cutting edge. In fact, Thomas Jefferson would call Geneva as one of the two greatest eyes of Europe um, for, its, for its education. Um, he sent his nephew to, to the University of Geneva to study. And between the University of Edinburgh and the University of Geneva in the, in the 18th century, these were the prime places to go. And they had very strong connections with the church and the clergy. Um, on almost every single case, the post, the scientific post, what we would think about is, so it's the emergence of what's called mechanistic science or experimental science, what's called the new science at the time, that they were clergy who filled those positions. The first mathematics position was a clergyman that had come from France who was a refugee. His son, Jean Jalabert, you may, you may know more about him than you realize. So. Uh, how many of you have read Mary Shelley's Frankenstein? Do you remember where it's set? Where does Dr. Frankenstein live and work? No. <laughs> You're thinking of Dracula. <laughs> but that would be a good answer if I had asked for Dracula. <laughs> well done. Geneva, actually, 18th century Geneva, because Jean Jalabert was one of the foremost, he was a clergyman, and scientists working on electrotherapy. They believed that you could use electricity in order to bring healing. And so he, so anyway, so it's a good place to set her story, though of course she, there's a, the takeaway is like, beware, <laughs> but still. <laughs> um, Geneva's Academy, one thing that's often put is how the church tries to keep science from developing, from expanding. And yet when you look at Geneva, it's, it's pain. The, the clergy are not only approving these positions, these subjects being taught in their university, but they're also paying for meteorological buildings, for chemistry labs. 
they are advancing in very tangible public ways where you could do experimental physics at the time. An observatory, for example, of course, all, the, all Christians always loved astronomy. That was a given. They were allowing things like the lightning rods to be put up in their city. So, uh, the, so in contrast with, honestly, many scholars who've said that this was opposed, this is not really the case. I want to end with John Wesley. Um, this is one of his electr electricity machines. Um, when we think of John Wesley, we think about him as traveling on horseback 20,000 miles. Did you, did you know that? 20,000 miles on horseback, um, doing open air and itinerant preaching. Now, what was significant about open air preaching? Does anybody know? <coughs> so Wesley, he's known for going outside in a meadow and preaching. Yeah. The acoustics were difficult. Yes. Yeah, but yet, I think he had a booming voice that could be heard for uh, yeah. long distances. Yeah, and, and George Whitfield too, was famously known for that. Yeah. Well, okay, so... So here's what was going on when he would go out into a meadow, because it was controversial. It was defying social, cultural niceties of the time. To leave the church constraints and to preach outside was actually what we would call a socioeconomic ministry, okay? He was saying, now think about the church at those times, you know, you've got... I know today we all like to sit where we like to sit in our church, right? It's no fun when you get there and you're like, this person's in my seat, you know. But back then, they really had like, you know, they had the pew and the name was on the pew and it was like, this is our family pew. Our name is here on the pew, <laughs> you know. And so there's a classism that was going on in churches. There's a hierarchy about how close you can sit, you know, and if you have a pew or if you're in the back and that sort of thing. So when he walks this Oxford-educated, you know, just excellent, high-bred, you know, individual goes out and he preaches in an open field. He did it because he wanted to reach the lower classes. He wanted to speak to those who wouldn't necessarily hear him, wouldn't necessarily come to, to church. Um, and so it was very, very controversial. Now, he didn't just do that with preaching. He also did that with, with uh, medical care. So it's, it's interesting to see Wesley because he has a really a holistic ministry. It's not just about preaching the gospel, but it's actually about taking care of people who are suffering physically, physiologically. Um, and so this concern for the everyday person, which by the way, the, the Methodist tradition is gonna move you into the social gospel movement, right? There's care of, for the abolition of slavery. All of these social concerns are emerging, especially in the Methodist church in that time period. So it's all linked, it's all linked together. Um, and very consistent in that way. In 1747, Wesley published a medical book called Primitive Physics, or An Easy and Natural Method of Curing Most Diseases. <laughs> um, I like to call it Web, it's like WebMD. Anybody use WebMD? It probably scares you more than anything, right? It gives you like every, every symptom for everything. But it's, it's meant to be a layman's tool for self-diagnosis and self-remedy. Um, it had 37 editions until 1859, over, uh, offering over 900 recipes for medical remedies. It went through 23 editions just in his lifetime. Now, in scholar speak, that means it was hugely popular, okay? It, was re it did really well. It's considered to be one of the most popular medical volumes published in 18th century England. I don't know if you think about John Wesley, you think about popular medical volumes. Probably not. <laughs> I'm not necessarily advocating that pastors do that today. <laughs> but what I am saying is just see how holistic the care, the ministry is, right? It's not just about proclaiming the gospel, but it's, it's about people and, and, and their lives. Um, in the, the wholeness of their lives. He founded free medical centers. He promoted electrotherapy. He even purchased four electrical machines that he put in his medical clinics. And he says as for, uh, for the poor, for the lower classes, to help them with access to care that they would not have had. And uh, 
and anyway, there's so many more examples that you could say. It's a rich, rich story. So this is really just the tip of the iceberg, I'll say. It just gives you a glimpse into you know, what, what was happening at those times. Um, today, of course, we live in a different time. We live in a time where there are definitely, t we live in a post-Darwinian period, right? There are different responses to issues of evolution. Even that I could speak on, though I guess, I think we're running out of time. Yes. <laughs> I wish I, are, are we? Oh no, we're good. Okay, let me just slow down then. Okay, so Wesley, I think, represents how pastors after the scientific revolution viewed engagement with science as an opportunity to do two things. One, to improve human life. That's one thing. And then secondly, to understand God as creator in greater depth in order to give him glory. In greater depth. So those are two things that matter to them in engaging with science. And those can be two things that matter to us today. The improvement of human life and to give glory to God, who is our creator. And so that's why the ministers were frequent. They were promoters. They were not <coughs> rather than detractors. They were enthusiasts. They were participants. They were not fear mongers of these new advances on the whole. Um, their observations and contributions through publishing, I think it's interesting, publishing, preaching, these are all contributing to explaining what's happening, to, to popularizing scientific advancement at that time. And, um, and then they model, they model engagement with science, the emerging science, and they integrate it into their ministry. They are integrating it into their ministry in very cutting edge ways, and sometimes very controversial ways. But they also understood that science had its limits. They also understood that scientific knowledge was limited, that there w there's also a healthy respect for the creator-creature distinction. Um, the, what's called the infinite qualitative distinction <laughs> between creature and creator. Even when evolution, when Darwin publishes um, in, in, the mid, in the mid 19th century, even when he publishes, you can see some significant voices like Charles Hodge, B.B. Warfield, other clergy that are trying to sort of reframe what this discovery means, right? They, they realize they must respond and they, so they're thinking theologically, they're thinking <coughs> biblically, how do we read the Bible? How do we understand what they're saying? And they, and they hold it, sometimes loosely, but they engage with it. And I think that's the point, is, is that they're willing to, they're not afraid of it. They're not afraid to engage with it. Um, and so, so to me, there's value. The church needs to recognize the role that it has played, and also society <coughs> needs to recognize the role that Christianity and the church has played in the advancement of modern science. And I think it can be encouraging towards ongoing interaction and engagement rather than isolation. There's a famous theologian by the name of Jürgen Moltmann. He was talking on this topic, science and wisdom, in his book, Science and Wisdom. He says, if we hear a topic like theology and science mentioned or faith and reason, what immediately springs to mind is the long history of conflict. See, it's just assumed that that is the story. So what I'm trying to do is push back against that story and say, that's really not an accurate perspective of the story, even though it's complicated. <laughs> it's rather the lack of conflict between statements which stand side by side without any relation to another and which no longer have anything to say to each other at all. Faith and knowledge of the world are no longer locked in conflict about the truth. They are resting side by side in a vacant coexistence. This is just his perspective of what he sees happening today. That it's not so much a warfare anymore as is an isolation. That they are strangers. So he would answer to Ian Barber, they're not partners and they're not enemies. They've become strangers. Um, and, uh, and in some ways, that's, that can be the result of the fact that these period that these fields become very isolated in their expertise right they become very advanced in those ways so you know there's no denying that we live in a different time period than the early modern era but what are some I want just want you to think just brainstorm and reflect a little bit what are some um, what are some dangers of a dynamic of vacant coexistence assuming just just accept his perspective for a second. What could that isolation do for the church and, and, and society to, to not be in 
relationship or an in interaction with each other. Yeah. I'm just thinking of the thing today is cloning. Cloning, yes. I mean, that's, right. That's okay, We're thank you. Well, exactly. So one thing that has been said is when we isolate from each other, where does that ethical voice come in? The ethical voice that can speak into where we're going as a society, you know? Um, if the church is isolated from that conversation, you know, if people accept that a scientist cannot be a Christian and a Christian cannot be a scientist, which we all know is not statistically true, first of all, but if people buy into that, you know, what's happening to our society? Yeah, thank you. Along the lines of what you just said, um, if, if this vacant call of business is the result of faith and knowledge, um, you're treating it in neutral quarters, then as a result, you terminate inquiry. Yes. And that termination of inquiry yeah. limits knowledge. It does. It limits knowledge. Thank you so much. Yes. So it kind of reminds me of Stephen Gould, right? He said non-overlapping magisteria, that religion is mm -hmm. here and science is here. That's right. Yes. Um, but unfortunately, especially from an apologetic standpoint, I think that if we separate those, really the reality is most people want to have their worldview make sense. Thank you. And if we can't engage those two yeah. topics. That's uh, right. When we're in the church and we affirm that God is creator and that he's redeemer and that he's sustainer of our world, that means he's involved, right? And that's complex. There's a mystery to how he's involved. Like we can recognize that. But we can't we can't actually bifurcate that worldview. Um, we can go about we can go about it properly and how we understand what's happening and, and that sort of thing, but it's it's not actually accurate for for what we believe theologically even. So, yeah, thank you. Yes, I think your hand and then right here. Yes. Yeah. How much are we going to do that? I mean, cloning was a thing, not to be disrespectful, but it was like 20, 30 years ago. We're not cloning, we're turning into a machine now. Right, and yeah. They have complete <coughs> brains that they're putting brains and things in, and this is actually happening. Yeah. And, and that's a huge ethics line. That's right. No. It raises questions about what does it mean to be human that Christians need to be involved in, right? We need to be talking about those things. We need to be engaging with those questions. I think the cloning example was, I think you were thinking about the pigs, with the, growing the human organs in the pigs. Is that what you're, and that's a recent thing that they just ended up doing. But yes. We need to be truth seekers yes. regarding science as much as we are with that's right. perspectives. Yes. Yeah. Um, maybe science wants there to be this gap or this coexistence that doesn't touch. Right. Because they they sometimes fake their results. They're, they're human beings. They That's right. They shouldn't. Yeah. Um, for example, being pro-life and pro-vaccine, those are conflicting, and most people do not know that. You know, I, I have a new friend. I, she's so wonderful i'm so excited to have met her and we just click you know when you just click with somebody <laughs> and she works for nasa and we have the most fabulous conversations because she says you know you're the human is still involved in the study like there is some you know there there are ability you do bring you can bring bias into a study it's not as pure as people assume the scientific method to be so that's that scientism that isn't actually realistic for how scientists are doing their work they you know there are ways to protect it's kind of like history as a historian there's a lot of similarities in fact to how i need evidence to support my points but there could be different interpretations of the evidence that we have to sort of engage with as a scholarly field. So exactly. So we need to be able to to have those conversations with others. We need to. I mean, yeah. We and in the back, be, we shouldn't be afraid. We shouldn't be afraid. That yes. That God's going to be excluded That's once right. we dig into the science. Well, this last one, and then I'm going to tell a story, and then we're done. Well, <laughs> what is it? I'm thinking of organ donors. Yes. And so. Um, 
oh, they cannot take the organs from a person who is actually dead. I haven't heard that before. I need to do research on it. Yeah. And the other thing is life. Right. I, I have a, I just have a gut feeling that because of medicine and science, we're living longer than God really designed. Well, you know, <laughs> I, I can't answer for God, <laughs> but I'll try. No, <laughs> I think, you know, I don't want the takeaway to be right now that we need to be afraid. I think the what I want to say is we've seen for the for 16th through 18th century people leading the church. Some of these things were exciting and crazy, and they couldn't believe it either. And they, yet they were able to engage and interact and think it through and sort of shape. And that's, that's what I'm saying. That's the principle to take away for today. And I just want to highlight, for example, one, uh, one story, and then we're done. One of the greatest challenges that our, fi- our world is facing right now is our growing immunity to antibiotics. Okay? Um, the reality of superbugs and the fear of their mutation and all the resistance to drugs that that we're increasingly experiencing is a serious concern for the scientific and medical communities. They had been trying to grow these antibiotics in petri dishes and were discovering in the labs that they they were not strong enough. And just like a, I don't know, maybe like a month ago, there was big, big news. I don't know if you've heard about this, but they decided to leave their laboratories and they decided to look in the dirt, to look in the soil. And what did they find in the soil but a brand new antibiotic that they didn't know was there, that had been there all the time, waiting. (laughs) To me, there is where we can say we support and celebrate the improvement of for human life that comes from that and what a God-given gift that is in the dirt, waiting. <laughs> I think that's so, amen. <laughs> okay, I, I can, uh, I'm happy to answer questions. Uh, what, what is your book coming up? My book? Um, well, uh, <laughs> on science, <laughs> I have a book called The People's Book that's on sale here, <laughs> but it's about the Bible and the Reformation, but still, um, my book on science, Calvin Meets Voltaire, is a book that I published in 2014, that it's more than about science, but it's got, it, it tells you about those clergy that I was talking about, so, thank you. <laughs> it's a really expensive book, though, so I feel bad. <laughs> it's like nobody can buy it, it's so expensive. <laughs> Calvin meets Voltaire. <laughs> so. so your take-home message was that we need to engage as yeah. a church on yeah. these topics. Yeah, yeah. Um, but certainly, in your generally speaking, how do you propose that our church and our people start to engage this question? Do you have, so there's a few things you can do. Um, in our church, we have scientists in our church. And they come and they will we, we'll do dialogues uh, in, in the service. Sometimes. In fact, we have one of the premier um, biologists in the, in the world who is <laughs> the dean of sciences uh, at Wheaton College who goes to my church. And she shares a lot. Her name's Doc Chapel. Yeah, and she shares a lot of her, her work. So I think that's part of it. I don't just mean that when I say the church, I, I'm, I don't just mean like the institutional structure, though there are some denominations that do weigh in on scientific advancements. Um, I'm thinking of, I think it's the RCA church. They make statements relating to certain things. So sometimes denominationally, a church will make a statement. And sometimes you just have people, congregants in your church that you can engage with. Um, It could be even your own learning, asking for adult ed classes on the topics. I find it necessary to teach often with a scientist because I can talk about attitudes and perceptions and how things are received, but I don't know how the science works. You know, um, somebody asked me one time I was speaking, they were like, but how does the electricity machine work? I'm like, I don't know. (laughs) Right? But the point is, they thought it could help in these ways. So, (laughs) yes. I'm a biologist. Oh. I just want to tell us, uh, not more than a minute. It's hard for me because I'm not like very, I don't have a lot of wisdom into the Bible and all that, 
but I believe in God, and I heard one example that really made a breakthrough. So the question is, do you know how a pencil, like a mechanical pencil is, not a mechanical, just like a, a wooden pencil yeah. is made. And so the, uh, the person says, well, you know, you have to chop the wood, you get the, the erasers from the tree, you have to put this, you have to do that. Yeah. And the pencil is so simple to make. And yet there is a whole huge explanation yeah. that comes behind it. Right, right. And I don't understand why scientists don't get that there is a higher power, because if the pencil, that is a pencil in my biological science, a pencil is not alive, because it doesn't complete the five prerequisites for, for, for something to be alive, then imagine everything else that exists around us. So for me, it was a very simple explanation yes. that it really that was really helpful. Well, that's, but see, the thing is, you're saying, I'm a biologist, I don't know a lot about the Bible. That's the alienation I'm talking about. So how can we get us interacting? How can we start to really engage that conversation? Because when we do, we discover some pretty wonderful stories, some pretty wonderful evidences, I think, of, of who God is and how God's at work. Yeah. Francis, Francis Collins. Oh, yes. Talked about that. Yes, okay. <laughs> I think that was just to make a sense of there is a higher power because a lot of the problem is that yeah. we, don't, we don't believe that there is God, right? Like people who yeah. believe yes. So that yeah. was just to yeah. appreciate the existence yeah. of a higher power. One of the studies, though, shows that, that um, oh gosh, they did a statistic of how many scientists actually do, are you know, a practicing Christians, um, and it's a really high percentage. So just this view that they are, you know, disconnected completely is not even don't you think accurate. Don't from people like Carl Sagan and those people who... Promoting. Uh, you know, promoting. Oh, yeah. Oh, so and you can use history in the same kind of way, right? You can use it to, to advance your own agenda. So that's why I just want to give you some stories to help as you think about, you know, what this dynamic is and therefore and what it could be today. We don't have to repeat, you know, we don't have to repeat the past, but I think there's always some takeaways that we can use that are helpful. Well, yeah. don't you also think that like, uh, Galileo and Copernicus, when they were throwing out some scientific fact, that the church pushed against them. No. Yeah. yeah, so that is, I can answer that. That's complicated. But, um, you know, Copernicus, what, the reason he was published was because he was published by a Lutheran pastor. I don't know if you, if, if you knew that. But his, his, as he was on his deathbed, the, the manuscript was taken to the, to the publishers by a Lutheran pastor. His name is Osiander. He's a really famous Lutheran pastor of the 16th century. He's a very well-known reformer who was involved. So it's just a little piece of how, like, the church, some scholars have wondered um, if, so it's wrapped up in the Reformation, and uh, so, and it also after the Council of Trent, when the Roman Catholic Church is responding to Protestantism, this is what Galileo gets pulled into. That is, that is why it's, it's more complex than just science and, and Christianity and odds. Galileo was like a really difficult man to work with. And he kept defying the church, even though they kept giving him like, just temper this or whatever. And they were, they were concerned because of the Protestant Reformation and what had just happened with that. So that's partly part of the story. The Gregorian calendar reform. Have you guys heard of the Gregorian calendar? You know, Pope Gregory issues this, the Gregorian calendar because the vernal equinox is, there's a 10 day regression and the calendar's off from seasons. And this is important because of Easter, how you calculate Easter. And so the church really cares about it. Well, the, everybody knew that the science was off. Everybody knew it. But the problem was that the Pope was the one who issued the calendar with a papal bull. Well, no Protestant community in the 16th century is going to accept that calendar, even though they know that science is wrong, even though they know that their science is off. So what do they do? They just create Protestant uh, algorithms. <laughs> Okay, <laughs> Protestant mathematical algorithms. So this is why, this is, gives you a sense of the complexity, I think, of the story. And it's not, sometimes it's painted as, it's, they're against scientific advancement. No, actually, this was a confessional issue that they were dealing with in their particular time. And it really didn't have anything to do with the science. So, yeah. One last. Uh, I just, I heard what you talked about today was a lot of the, 
around the Enlightenment, around the Reformation, around that time period, but like even just Galileo, but there's Bruno before that. Yeah. People went after, you know, these guys who were in the faith, discovering things that Galileo proved with the telescope and stuff like that. And, and like for my research in history and stuff like that, of like is the science martyrdom, you know, that the people, mainly the Catholic Church, before the Reformation, you know, kind of like set in place for those who you mentioned today to be able to pick up. We don't we don't see though the um, I mean for historians of science the the rise of modern science is not emerging before the Copernican revolution, so I'm actually not doing work on that dynamic. I'm doing it from the Copernican revolution after. So um, so that's that's one thing I would say that you know so there's a difference in expertise in that issue. Um, there are some scholars, actually, some historians who think that the, there's a different relationship between Protestant communities in scientific advancement and Catholic communities. So sometimes they make distinctions there. Um, and that, so there are different scholars, like um, Deason has a good article, if, you're, if you work on this, I'm happy to send it to you, that, that explores that theory um, about, but something that is often does strike me is how science is able to also go beyond the confessional boundaries too. So how Catholic and Jean Jalabert, the one who's working on electricity um, that I mentioned, he was involved in conversation with Abbe Nolet, who was a very famous French um, uh, scientists working on electrotherapy as well and they were sharing their experiments and they were writing back and forth and so there, it also kind of um, overcame too so there, there's stories of, of confessionalized alienation and there's stories where they overcome some of those confessional divides as well um, so I guess I'll just I, th I say as a good um, professor uh, I teach grad students. I always say my job is to complicate things for you. <laughs> and so I hope that I've done that, <laughs> uh, which I would consider that a success. So. <laughs> Thank you.